Welcome to Close the Door and Come Here, a Song of Ice and Fire podcast with heavy leanings towards our two favorite characters, Jamie and Brienne. Man, there was a bear bear, all black and brown and covered in hair. Hey everyone, I'm Guile, and I tweet at Door Podcast, and today I'm joined by Devin. Hey, this is Devin, GD Harpo on Twitter. And Lot. Hi, I'm Lot at The Lady of Tarth on Twitter. And today we're continuing our Game of Thrones reread with Daenerys 4. I know it seems like there's been 40 Danny chapters, but this is only the fourth. <laughs> and in this chapter, Danny and the Kalisar have finally arrived at Vaz Dothrak. And um, we learn, you know, some little tidbits since we last saw Danny. Um, Viserys has been being unknowingly mocked by the Dothraki for accepting a ride in the cart after um, he was forced to walk behind the Kalisar. And now they call him Kal Ragat, the cart king. Um, I did a little bit of research on one of those Dothraki translation, translation sites, and I was trying to figure out what other kings would have been called. And, like, it just wasn't very complete. I couldn't get a lot of answers. But I did get um, Kal Havzi, which would be um, the Cat King. So we could call Tom and Kal Havzi. <laughs> That's was, uh, way more research than I usually put into these chapters, Kyle. <laughs> that would literally be almost the extent of, of my research. I did try to figure out, like, well, what would Stannis' name have been? And I tried, like, the Grim King or... Um, the gritting, like nothing, nothing was coming up. But I did, I did try for the Stannis fans out the there. The clenched jaw king, right? The clenched jaw king. <laughs> the Dothraki do not have a word for clenched jaw. <laughs> so, um, but Danny was eventually able to persuade Drogo um, in the bedroom to let Viserys ride again. So. Um, Viserys has joined Jorah and Danny, who are kind of riding behind Drogo. And as they're passing through the gates of Vest, not the gates, but the entrance to Vestothrak is these two beautiful um, stallion statues that kind of form a window onto the sacred mountain in the distance, the Mother of Mountains. So it sounds like quite, you know, super cool um, to me. I don't know about you guys, but we find <laughs> that, you know, as they're walking through this gate, essentially... It's sort of like the dumping ground of treasures from the cities that the Dothraki have taken over the years. So there's these, you know, all these beautiful statues, or you know, in some cases like scary statues that are just like strewn about. Um, just like a junkyard of like yeah, all the things they've pillaged. And it's like the dump that have no value to them, but can imagine how morale killing this would be for their enemies, <laughs> or this, you know, if they're bringing slaves in, you know, from something to like see that right there yeah Yeah. but um you know viserys mocks it he you know thinks that the dothraki have nothing to offer except conquering like they don't make anything they don't build anything um you know all they have is destruction and you know he continues to be really frustrated that drogo hasn't given his army yet and you know danny's anxious too and you know it feels like part of that might be just to basically get rid of Viserys at this point. Um, he doesn't, he's obviously not very pleasant to be around. And, you know, Jorah explains to her that 
you know, Viserys thinks that he sold Danny to Drogo, but Drogo considers her a gift, and he will give Viserys a gift in kind when the time is right. And, you know, Viserys has been going on about how he's going to take back the Seven Kingdoms with his 10,000 Dothraki screamers. And, you know, she wonders, you know, could he really do it? And Jorah has one of the better lines in the books with, you know, I think it's, um, he's going to sweep the Seven Kingdoms with 10,000 Dothraki screamers. And Jorah says, Viserys couldn't sweep a stable with 10,000 brooms. (laughs) (laughs) Which I really love (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's pretty great. It's a good insult. Yeah. Burn, burn. Yeah, I was gonna say there's two questions that go pretty, um, pretty well right here, um, from the email. Yeah. So the first one is from Danny Buck on Discord and says, "What did the Thraki invasion work?" I mean, if they could get them there. Well, and I yeah. Think, yeah, that's always my biggest thing. If they can get them there. Well, I mean, then that's part of the discussion that Danny and Jorah continue to have. Um, you know, where Jorah. I think Jorah, as he's lived with that Dothraki, has start has started to like recognize their skill, but still thinks that they would never have the patience to break a siege. Right. Yeah, I really like that part where he was like kind of giving her a rundown of all the different lords that she would need to consider at play. Right? Because like he uh, he said, you know, King Robert would, you know, he yeah he, he's he, not he likes a coward. To fight. He would fight. Yeah. But yeah, that, so he you know, would meet her in right. field, but then you're looking at like Stannis would not, the Lannisters would not, and Ned, and then well, we'll get to that. Bit well, here's something that I put in my notes: is he does he specifically mentions Stannis, Tywin, and Ned, but he doesn't mention John Aaron. Um, Jorah should not know that John Aaron is dead, right? Like, there's no way that Jorah should have like that good of news, except that he's obviously been getting information from Varys, but. As a reader, this should have been, um, this should have like pinged us a little bit because he yeah. shouldn't, and he would have absolutely mentioned John Aaron in this context because you know he would be, you know, the calm hand of the king that absolutely would never meet the Dothraki, and not Ned as the hand, right? right. Like this yeah. shouldn't even been on his radar to mention Ned, maybe. But how fun would it, I mean? Could you imagine Stannis against the Dothraki? Like, I mean, the Dothraki would have just like. What would they think oh. of? Like, Stannis is just the antithesis of... Yeah, they like, would have killed themselves style. out of boredom. Yes, because Stannis would, would never. <laughs> right, I mean, it, and like, the names, like, he would have just lived in legend in Dothraki culture because they would <laughs> never break him, you know? The Unbroken <laughs> King, maybe that's what Stannis is. Um, was there another another question around this part, too? Uh, yeah, there was another one. So, um, what is your um, favorite insult? Oh, this is from Observe Chaos on um, Reddit. What is your favorite insult in A Song of Ice and Fire, um, inspired by the Dothraki calling Viserys the Sorefoot King? I mean, I kind of love, like, this 10,000... Like, I mean, I guess it's not, like, a, a name. I don't know. What do you guys think? Hmm. Um, one of mine is uh, Wyman, Man- Wyman Manderly talking about... Um, what was it, Little Walter Frey or Little? Yeah, the one the that was killed. Um, yeah, the main one. Um, when he says, uh, "Mayhaps this was, uh, th- mayhaps this was good," he would have because he would have grown up to be afraid. I can't remember the exact quote, but that's <laughs> pretty much the gist. I mean, it's good. Had he lived, he would have grown to be afraid. afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I like when um, it's Sir Balin Swan's brother 
And, um, you know, Jamie's, you know, when Jamie's interviewing Balin Swan and he's talking about his brother and how, you know, he basically somehow managed to bend the knee to like four of the five kings and how he should add a weather vane to his sigil. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, it's got to be, it's got to be one of Jamie's, but like, I, I don't know, my mind's drawn a blank. If it comes to me, I'll let you know. <laughs> and I feel like, and you know, there's so many of them. Yeah, and you know, future we've got Kyle Cunt to look forward to. <laughs> well, yeah, if it's future insults, I've got mine ready to go. <laughs> Another one I have. It's not really an insult, um, and it's a few chapters back, but it's when Renly guffaws at um, the fact that Arya dis uh, disarmed Joffrey. Oh yeah, that's always funny to me because, like, he's leaving the. I can always picture him leaving the room, just crying and screaming and laughter <laughs> so um so danny notices you know when jorah mentions ned you know she notices the disdain that she that ned um that jorah mentions ned with and you know asks him about it and jorah complains that ned um this is a quote took everything he loved for the sake of a few lice-ridden poachers and his precious honor which I thought was you know Quite a spin there by Jorah. <laughs> you mean because yeah. he was selling people into slavery and then fled, and then fled the country with your wife who immediately left you? Sure, okay, but Ned's the <laughs> Ned's the bad guy in this scenario. Man, it's just yeah. kind of lack of self awareness completely on yeah. Jorah's part. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Jorah. And there's another question here as well. Oh, sure. Oh, um, yeah, from Wax Paper Door on Reddit. Um, I find it very difficult to take uh, Joris' plight seriously, given that he sold people into actual slavery. Um, but do you think the advice and counsel he gives Danny in this chapter is good advice? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, about the Lords, yeah, I'm kind of like a rundown of, you know, I mean, we kind of talked a little bit at length of it, but I don't see anything bad with the advice he's given. No, I think most of his advice that, you know, I don't think he's particularly given Danny bad advice at all. Like he seems. Yeah, I don't think he does. Yeah, genuinely to. I mean, you know, at this point, he's like half in love with her already, probably. But also, I think. Yeah, he, he typically gives her sound advice. And I mean, I think the soundest has just been to keep her eyes pretty open about Viserys. And, you know, I think part of her actions, you know, later in this chapter and, you know, further on are someone to at least give her validation for what she knows deep down about her brother. And, you know, I don't know that she would ever trust that or get that from Drogo or anyone or any of the Dothraki or any of her slaves, but Jorah can present himself as almost an equal in a way to give like a true evaluation of Viserys, Hmm. which is super valuable for her, I think. Um, so they go further on into Vast Athrock, and I thought this was kind of interesting about how, you know, the city was huge, but there's no one there. Um, be, but the idea is that there's room for all of the Kalasars to be there at once, since the Crones have prophesied that one day um, all the calls will return to the Mother at once, which, um, you know, we wonder, is that going to happen in, you know, the, wind of, the winds of winter, for example? We know George has talked about you know, there being much more about the Dothraki there. And, you know, to go west, you must go east. You know, is this is this something that we're going to see, um, you know, coming up potentially? Yeah, that's a, yeah. another question, I... actually. <laughs> um, so from Hiruna22, 
um, on Reddit. What do you think of the prophecy that all the Dothraki will one day meet at the mother? Do you think it's just something George threw in there, or is it foreshadowing for something? Uh, it's totally going to happen. I think definitely. I mean, I hope so because I think we've talked about you know just if nothing else, how interesting it would be to see him revisit the Dothraki culture and people, you know, 30 years after he started writing about them. And, you know, obviously, you know, just assuming that he's come to, he's writing it in a different world. And what would that be like? And how would he treat them? I think, you know, that would just be interesting. And, you know, I thought how the Danny was talking about how the buildings there are basically the slaves were just, the slaves that were brought in had to build all the buildings and they each built them with their own, you know, with their own culture in mind. Cause that's what they knew how to build. So it's like there's marble pavilions and there's like a pyramid. And then there's these, you know, woven grass built woven grass ceiling buildings and like all, you know, it just sounds like, you know, utterly bizarre, but so, you know, <laughs> like really interesting again, like in a visual medium, like TV or an animation, it would have been really cool to see, you know, this vast empty city with all of, you know, all of this different architecture in it. It kind of reminds me of, um, like, last week, like, John Oliver, the background has, like, randomly has Dragonstone in there, like, some other, like, random architecture in the, in the skyline. <laughs> you gotta wonder if, like, some of the ancient cities were like that, um, you know, or even if our cities are kind of like that in a way with like the you know having so many people now living mm -hmm. in like global like like a you know like cities our modern cities are a mix of people i never really thought of it that way but then you see those subdivisions where in like we're generally speaking if you were drunk you would could easily go to the wrong house you know like where the whole <laughs> association yeah. is so like okay it has to you know be like this yes. and like uh yeah it's like suburban hell cookie yeah. cutter yeah no <laughs> That's the same, maybe a different, slightly different color. Yeah, or, you know, the bricks are, you know, on the bottom instead of the... <laughs> I don't get it, but, you know, I live in it's a It's our world. world. <laughs> yeah. It is our world. Exactly. Um, so, as they get into this, as they, you know, get to, get to the end of the city, um, Drogo has to ascend the Mother of Mountains, and, um, you know, only, of course, only men are allowed there, so, yay. Um and we get this little interlude where we learn a little about a little bit about his blood riders and what that means. And essentially, you know, his blood riders are his chosen, you know, like essentially brothers more or less. And when Drogo dies, they are supposed to, um, you know, if he dies of natural causes, like they will die with him. If someone kills him, they're supposed to live long enough to avenge him and then, you know, die basically. And, you know, they sound, you know, like, I think Koholo is the oldest, and he actually saved Drogo's life when Drogo was a child. And he seems, like, pretty gruff, but basically not, like, a bad guy. But the other two are um, Hago and Kotho. And, you know, we learn that they basically, you know, Drogo doesn't share Danny with them, which it seems like that's not that uncommon with other calls to share their wives with their blood riders. But obviously they do share Danny's maids. And um, they're abused by them. So, you know, we hear about Daria having, um, you know, bruises and Eerie is like crying in the night, especially I think it's um, Kotho that is kind of the worst one. And just, you know, how 
you know, how awful. I think of like poor Doria, who's, you know, abused by Viserys, abused by Danny, by Drogo's blood riders. You know, eventually she dies in the red waste. Like just, you know, a horrible, you know, kind of a horrible, horrible life. miserable life. Well, yeah. And, you know, in Eerie and Jiki, it's not like they were just like, ran- you know, they're not random. Not that it would matter if they were, but I mean, Eerie was specifically chosen to teach her to ride, which is, you know, I would think like a really highly prized skill amongst the Dothraki. So she's like a really good horsewoman. And Jiki is teaching her Dothraki. So, I mean, she has, you know, obviously she knows the common tongue. She, you know, like she's a smart person. Like these are like, you know, yes, there's, you know, they're slaves, they're her maids, but also like highly skilled employees for lack of a better way to put it. And they're just treated like pieces of, you know, pieces of meat more or less. And it's just, again, like pretty, you know, pretty upsetting when you hear about, you know, Eerie having to be sobbing in the night because of this this blood rider, um, but yeah, it's pretty disgusting. Yeah. You know, I yeah, can't... when oh, go ahead, Devin. Oh, well, I was just gonna say when I was reading the part that uh, Drogo didn't share Danny with the blood riders, I'd forgotten that tidbit, and then I'd forgotten all the next tidbit too. Yeah. So I was like, oh, George showed some restraint here, and I was like, oh shit, no, he didn't. Um, <laughs> still very bad. <laughs> You know, and I just, I just think like too, like I'm just, I'm trying to wrap my head around this blood writer concept and how Danny is kind of like um, into it. Like she wants her son to have a blood writer, yeah. uh, blood writers, because she doesn't hold much stock into the King's Guard given what happened with her father. But I'm like, what an adolescent dream to think of this as a concept though to have blood writers like that have to kill themselves after they avenge you (laughs) like it's like it shows like it's an illustration of the short lifespan of people (laughs) for this for this time this era that this world we're depicting yeah and just like their lives have no meaning yeah of of their own of their own yeah it's just to serve him And I mean, we see that in Westeros, though. I mean, the King's Guard, you know, like it's not like they have to kill themselves. But yeah, I was gonna say, at least they give, don't have to kill themselves. You know, they give everything up, and the same with the Night's Watch. Like they give, you know, they give everything of themselves up, and just how, like I think, are we supposed to see some nobility in that? I don't. It's sort of like I don't know. I don't know. I don't see it. It's a con- no. It's a control thing. I like guess totally a, th- a made-up fabrication by those in power that want to control people. I don't know. Anytime anybody's asking you to give up something like that, give up that's yourself, like kind of a like a human right. Yeah. <laughs> like be wary. Right. Right. Yeah. No self-determination there. Yeah. And I wonder, like, who was the first call? Who was like? After I die, you guys have to kill yourselves. Unless you event, you know. Well, first you can avenge who killed me if that's what happened. But otherwise, you got to kill yourself because it couldn't have been the guy that was already dead. Like, because I can't. It's hard for me to believe that the first guy thought it. So somewhere <laughs> down the line, somebody was like, "You know what? This is a good idea." And I don't, you know, I know like. So I, I also did some. I did a little bit of research around like sacred mountains and stuff because I. I really, like, I read, I, I gotta look this book up, because I know I've talked about it before, and I, I think I've never bothered to give um, the names, the name of it, but there's um, there's a nonfiction author, his name is Hampton Sides, and he's written, um, he's written a bunch of, you know, I mean, everything from this World War II raid to rescue, um, rescue American POWs that were basically, um, 
they, they were in the Bataan Death March, and then they were kept at a Japanese camp in the Philippines, and they were going to be basically murdered as the Americans were, were coming in. And so there was this raid to rescue them. And he wrote a really incredible book about that. He's written about um, the hunt for Martin Luther King Jr.'s murderers, murderer. Um, but the, he also wrote a book called Blood and Thunder, which is um, a little bit about Kit Carson, but it's ultimately just about... Um, you know, the, about the American West at that time. So, like, a really huge portion of it is about the Navajos. And um, Kit Carson lived in Taos, New Mexico. And so a lot of it is about that specific physical region, which obviously, you know, that's where George is. Um, so, I, you know, I was kind of wondering if there were any similarities between some of the Navajo mountain myths, but not really because the Navajo, like, they have the four sacred mountains, but they're more... Um, it's more ge- like it's more about the geographical borders of their land, and it goes in like a clockwise way between like dawn and and night, and it's so it's not quite um, not quite this, which was a little bit disappointing because I was kind of hoping to like really see like more of a parallel there. So then um, one thing that was kind of interesting is um, the in Genghis Khan had a mountain that he he fled to this he fled to the mountain. Um, and was saved by, like, an old woman after a battle. And, like, this is also apparently where he might be buried. And I think when he was buried, actually, a lot of the people that were doing that were actually killed so that it wouldn't be, like, the spot so wouldn't can't be reveal. revealed. And, you know, no one to this day knows quite where it is. So there's um, so there's that sacred mountain. So it could also be, because I know there's a little, there's some, like, echoes of Mongol culture with, with the Dothraki as well. So it was... Um, you, you, know know what else is a, you know what else is a sacred mountain is Mount Rushmore. It was yeah. the six grandfathers um, by the Lakota. Well, and there's, I mean, there's a whole, um, you know, Japan, like there's a ton of sacred mountains. Like there's just a, you know, a, the sacred mountain is a pretty, you know, ends up being pretty common and pretty, um, you know, pretty much goes across all these various cultures. So in um, in Mongolia, it's Burkhan Khaldun, which I'm sure I'm butchering the pr- pronunciation of. But that was the sacred mountain there, and that felt like maybe the closest one, the closest one to what the Dothraki mother of mountains. But again, there wasn't really a clear, oh, this is you know a copy of this at all. It was, yeah, yeah. You know, I think yeah, he's just lightly borrowing and yeah, yeah, reweaving it. So I was a little disappointed because I really wanted it to you be You just wanted more. an answer. <laughs> I did. I kind of just wanted like, oh, it's this because he lives in New Mexico and he was, bar- you know, he's borrowing this, you know. But nope, uh, he, you know, not at all. So, um, so anyway, Drogo has to go up to the Mother of Mountains for the evening, and they'll be back at dawn. And you know, Danny's like, I don't know how many months pregnant, but basically, she's like, oh, good, <laughs> don't I have a night off, more or less. And so she decides that um, she's been having, you know, Viserys has been wearing these like essentially Western clothes, and they're stained, and it sounds like they smell disgusting, and. So she's had um, Dothraki clothing made for him, which she thinks that... Um, I, I, sorry, I had to laugh because, like, in the description of this, like, when George is describing this outfit she had made for Viserys, I was like, you know what? This sounds like a pretty dope outfit. I would right. wear this. It was, like, like, this crisp, like, white linen, yeah. like, tunic thing with, like, lacy sandals, sandals and, like, a, up to the a real fierce like bronze medallion belt i'm like i'm in i'm in and a leather vest on painted with a fire breathing dragons like yeah it kind of sounds a leather like... vest like i was like this sounds like uh like a ed hardy slash harley davidson thing thrown on top of all of this. see i was thinking like a um 
like a early Robert Plant type of thing because I felt like he was a big fan of like the vest <laughs> with nothing underneath it type of look. So it kind of felt like seventies, like seventies rock star thing maybe. But oh, yeah, my mind like, went pretty my, awesome. My mind went like my mind totally went like Harley Davidson leather vests with like Ed Hardy Dragons. <laughs> I was like, no. <laughs> I mean, it's still kind of awesome. Like, not gonna lie. Like, the white pants and the you know leather sandals up to the knee. Like, oh, you know, I don't know if they go above the pants or or under, but you know, still cool. Oh, and like, I don't know. Maybe it's big because like, I was. Cloak. I was like, maybe maybe it's more like because I was picturing more like resort wear, and then I got to that vest. <laughs> yeah, and then it's like a like a grass green cloak. Um with a gray border to like match, like to bring out his lilac eyes. So, um, I don't, you it's know, weird. like, again, it's like outfit. it sounds like a pretty awesome outfit. And she, it's weird. <laughs> she specifically had, um, her maids go to the, go to the market and get something other than horse meat. Cause she doesn't like horse meat. So she's really like planned this nice evening with him. And she, you know, sends Daria to fat to, you know, bring him to dinner. And unfortunately Daria, presented it as a command and Viserys basically beats her up and drags her back to Danny and throws a huge fit about how she, you know, how dare she command him to do anything. And, you know, she goes into damage control and was like, no, you know, she just, it's just a mistranslation, you know, no big deal. I got you these, you know, I look at all these awesome clothes I got had made for you. And he's just like, it smells like manure. I might use it as a blanket and is completely dismissive of it. And, you know, he's like, what are you going to do next? Sew some bells into my hair. And she's like, you've, you know, you, you've never earned them. You've never won anything, which, you know, that's one of those yay, Danny. Um, yeah, that was my favorite burn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yay, Danny moments. And, you know, he gets physical with her as he tends to do and, she reaches out and she grabs the gold medallion or the bronze medallion belt and whacks him across the face with it. And um, it sounds like breaks open his face a little bit. And, you know, she's like, if Drogo hears about this, he'll cut open your body and, you know, feed you, feed you your own guts, basically. Um, pretty oh, picture. to back up, one thing I did forget to mention that we'll find in later chapters relevant is that um, – no one is allowed to spill blood in Vastath Rock. And when they're in Vastath Rock, all of the Kalasar is considered, you know, one herd, one one people. Um, which again, given the prophecies, will be will be interesting in the future, but I um I digress. Mm-hmm. So um you know, Danny doesn't have any, you know, she tells the girls to eat the meal that they had pre- you know, they had prepared for the series and bring some to Jora. And um Instead, she just goes to bed and she takes one of the dragon eggs and kind of just lays it, she just basically cradles one of the dragon eggs as she falls to sleep and, um, you know, thinks of it, she can feel the baby moving and, you know, thinks of the egg and her child as brothers um, and, you know, whispers to the baby, you know, whispers, but, you know, is it to the baby, is it to the egg, you know, you're the true dragon, I know it, and she smiles and goes to sleep dreaming of home as the chapter ends. You think like with the blood on the cloak too, and like it talks about her kind of curling up with the egg because it's like Viserys's blood is spilt on that cloak. It's like she kind of has both these things wrapped together. I can't help but wonder if that was like 
you know, some of that blood magic. Well, and I wonder, too, if, you know, because you are not supposed to spill blood, is this, you know, is this part of why what happens to Rago, what happens in that, you know, mm-hmm. she spilt, you know, she spilt blood in Vastath Rock. You know, is this, you know, did she break some taboo here? Some, uh, some mystical rule that must be paid for. I mean, it seems like kind of shitty, you know, like, well, it seems like an overreaction by fate or whatever, <laughs> but I guess. <laughs> I mean, as Danny chapters go, this one, you know, a little bit less misogynistic and, well, I shouldn't say that. It's still no, awful. No, no. I mean, not really. Yeah. Just- <laughs> Just back that up. <laughs> yeah, you know, I said it, and then I just forgot about the part with the blood riders, like you know, raping her, raping her maid. So you know, we we got our, I guess we got our quota of of rape and pillage grossness. Yeah, exactly. Uh, do do we have any more questions, Devin, on this one? Um, not episode specific, just general mail. Okay. All right. So general mail. Um. So this is mostly about the uh, motherhood episode. So um, the first one is from Sadie, who requested the special Patreon episode on motherhood. Um, The special episode on motherhood was so good and so fun and exactly what I needed last week when it came out. So thank you again for that. And then there's a heart emoji. Uh, Thank you, Sadie. So next is from WeRet or YRet on uh, Discord. Um, Edited, uh, just listen to the mother episode. It's one of the uh, most interesting you made. In my honest opinion, and that says a lot. Um, and she says, and since you asked, uh, Yaret is not a real name. It's a mix of my cat's names. Um, <laughs> so you pronounce it as you want. I would like to know the cat's names, if you would let us know that information. Um, yes. <laughs> a French person will pronounce it Yaret, but Yaret is okay. Um, and so this one's, yes, we read. Um, so, um, the episode made me think a lot, um, confirmed some things, denied others. Your take on Catelyn trying, um, at first to mother Brienne, but renouncing when she's destroyed by the news that her sons are dead was, uh, eye opening. Um, and so she goes on to talk about absent, uh, mothers and fathers. Um, she says amongst explanations, the fairy tale, um, but buildings Ramon. Uh, of many parts of the plot can explain a part of this. Parents need this. Ne- parents need for this, and about the protagonist being traumatized. When I did my family tree from mid nineteenth, um, I was very surprised and disturbed to see um, that from mid nineteenth to after World War II, every generation went through trauma. And I'm not talking um, educative trauma, although those are not to uh, take lightly, but huge, blatant trauma: the death of a parent in childhood. Um, deaths of children or a father sent to war for a long time and comes back different. My family being as ordinary as you can get, I uh, found now the quantity of trauma in A Song of Ice and Fire is in fact pretty realistic. Um, Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to the next part. So, yeah, you you can... Well, I just... A a really good friend of mine is a genetic counselor and, you know, she was talking about, you know, stories from families that um, have the the breast cancer gene, um, the genetic breast cancer gene that's pretty prevalent among um, Eastern Europeans of Jewish of Jewish descent, and just talks about these families where, for generation after generation, you know, the women died in like their twenties or you know probably not their twenties, but like their thirties, and how, you know, it just it it created a certain family, it created a certain you know they were basically rebuilding themselves all the time, and you know these were families that 
early on in World War II were able to flee. You know, they're able to flee and then, you know, but basically like lost everything. But like part of this trauma or part of what they had gone through made them able to like rebuild themselves in the, you know, in the Western hemisphere. So it was just interesting, like all of, you know, you hate to be like, well, this, you know, adversity just makes you stronger. But, you know, in that case, it certainly did. Okay, so still from I read, um about Catelyn's mother in A Clash of King Cat um, 6, the motherhood chapter at this point in my reading. Cat mentioned her quickly. She thinks about her own as a case, education as a little lady, support her father, her husband, doing her duty and never fighting physically and directly um, because that's the job of men of her family. Um, describing this last point to Brienne, she added, or so my mother told me. I've read this as both uh, willful and ironic disillusioned. At the same time, she seems to think Brienne's way to be a warrior woman is easier because she can fight her way through situations while Kat can't. More generally, I felt this chapter contains a reflection of the adequacy of this traditional lady education her mother gave her and she gave to Sansa. But as often with Kat, she doesn't go to the end of two subversive ideas. I mean, the thing is, though, is I don't want to, I don't think it, and I don't think Kat would, and I don't think we would necessarily think the education that Sansa got was, I mean, it wasn't in, it wasn't necessarily inadequate because it was focused on like women's quote unquote work. I mean, I think that was, I think it's really important to not dismiss that as useless either. Um, you know, Sansa yeah. was brought up to basically run a large, you know, estate for the last, you know, estate or even, you know, even an entire region, like that's the, you know, that's the role of a woman of her station. And it's not something insubstantial, you know, where Kat maybe fell down a little bit is that Kat's really quite politically adept. And, you know, it doesn't seem like that's anything that she took a role in really with any of her children, because none of them are particularly um, are that, I mean, Rob is a little bit politically minded, but, um, you know, she didn't really see not as much as he should be to be that. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, obviously Ned, that's not something Ned's super comfortable with. Like, Ned's really comfortable with, I think, like, the one thing I think of Rob and being, like, fairly politically adept is just, like, his relationships with his, um, with his lords. Like, that personal Yeah, like just in the North. Right. And that's where Rob is, like, at his best, and that's, like, obviously what he took from Ned, but in terms of, like, politics none of those kids were prepared and Ned wasn't going to, you know, that wasn't something Ned was going to do. And it's not something Kat did. And I don't know if it's because she didn't feel it was the place of a mother to do that or not. Um, And maybe that's where she, you know, maybe that's where a bit of her failure is, is not like filling in that gap that Ned wasn't providing. Could it have been their age though? Like I I, I just can't see Kat as being a, um, a woman that wouldn't try to impart this kind of knowledge upon her children. Maybe she just honestly thought she had more time. Yeah. I mean, maybe, I mean, it's still, it's like, did they, I always go back to the, how did, you know, how did they not assume that Sansa was going to be betrothed to Joffrey? Like that just seems like such a, obvious thing that was going to happen that Sansa should have not just been brought up as someone that was going to, you know, run a large estate, but that someone that had a very strong possibility of being the queen and that her Mm -hmm. education should have been more reflective of, of, you know, what it would make perfect sense for her to be. 
And that kind of gets in a little bit to her third part of the question. Um, Catelyn's arrested motherhood. Um, I've never seen this before, but even um, if we often see Cat as the figure of motherhood, she's in fact an arrested mother. The only child she could educate until adulthood is Rob. She never had time or opportunity to teach Sansa to be more wary, careful, or a bit cunning. She never had time to adjust her motherhood style to Arya. After the events of A Game of Thrones and A Clash of Kings, I think she would have been able to do it. Not to talk about Bran and baby Rickon, um, and she was arrested in the same way in her attempt to mother a bit uh, Brienne. That's Cat's tragedy, I think, more than the Red Wedding, per se, and could perhaps be the key to her Lady Stoneheart arc. Well, I don't know. I think, I, just to reiterate how I feel, I just think she just never had the time. I mean, she she probably felt like she had more time to get to these things. Yeah, and like we forget, I mean, Rickon is what three or four. I mean, he is, you know, a baby. There's, you know, his education is like, here's how to use a fork, you know. <laughs> I think he uses his hands. Yeah, he totally would. <laughs> I don't think Rickon uses. She didn't a have fork. time to teach him that. <laughs> she definitely failed in that area. <laughs> I think everybody did. Yeah. yeah. Trust me, it's, we all do. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, you know, Stoneheart is such a blank to me in terms of, is it, you know, is it her motherhood? Is it, you know, is her motherhood important? You know, is it her motherhood that's going to be important? Is it, you know, a statement against like this blind vengeance or, you know, is it, you know, what is it going to be? It all comes down to how much of Catelyn is left in there. That's the big question. We don't know. Yeah, and I mean, it's not like Cat. I mean, it's not like Cat was this like super warm. You know, I mean, she's not not warm, but I mean, it's not like she's like this Mother Earth type of person either. I mean, she's you know catty for lack of you know pardon the pun. You know, she's a sharp, mm-hmm. and it's not just like Lady Stoneheart is a complete different, you know, different from Cat. It's like amplifying like the worst, the yeah. worst traits of her. You know. So she's there, but it's, you know, ugh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Give it to us. Let us let us find out. <laughs> right. <laughs> I know, right? Okay. Um. So she goes on to say, Brienne as Pod's mother. I was very surprised and interested um, by your remark that Brienne is more Pod's father than mother, if we are adopting classically gender definition for these roles. And it echoes with your remark about the fact that she didn't react to Kat's attempt to mother her. The cause could be the same for both. She's uh, She has no experience of being handled and physically nurtured by a mother, a mother figure. And even if Roelle was, uh, was for her a mother's figure, decreeing which kind of woman she, Brienne, should be and failed at being, the Scepter obviously was never a caring figure. Especially, um, she seen, she deems her body unfit and it could play in the way that she can't relate to some of Kat's um, ass. Singing the dress and doesn't physically soothe uh, Pod. I don't think a hug for the little boy is mentioned. Um, I think she would be able to care for and heal Pod if he was wounded, as she did for Jamie. But otherwise, she sees parents, um, she parents as she has been by Selwyn and Godwin. Um, Jamie, who at least has some more experience in parenting, Tyrion, and has had a mother for a bit more time, could have some work to do on the physical way of love. Not only the sexual part of it, I'm a bit worried about how um, GR 
Graham will treat it. I feel it's crucial uh, for the part for Brienne's future, but I'm not sure he agrees. Yeah, I guess I don't know. I mean, I feel like if, you know, we talked about Brienne being more of a father figure, I, I think it's, I don't know that it's necessarily means that Brienne doesn't like get, you know, mother, you know, get mothering or a traditional mother figure. I think it's more like to me that pods her squire. And so the skills yeah. that she feels she has to teach him are more like masculine gendered skills. I think, you know, when I think of, you know, what, but then when I think of like how she treats Gendry when she meets him, you know, it's very much like feminine feminine nurturing like it's you know she want you know she brings him food you know she's so i think i think it's just what, what pod is in her what pod is in her life as a squire more than that she doesn't maybe know how to do that yeah i think that's she's a protector as well and i don't think it yeah it, and she's taking him on as a squire so that seems really cut and dry um yeah how to conduct yourself with Podrick. He does need a hug, though. He does. So does Brienne. So does fucking (laughs) Brienne. Even Hyde needs a hug. He's been hanging there for like 15 years, so... Oh, my goodness. A hug and a lift. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. um, Our last email. Well, I'm here from Sir Bonifer, um, and this was through email. Dear ladies and permanent Devons, <laughs> just, <laughs> just catching up now on your reread of the Game of Thrones chapters, and I've got to say um, Daenerys 2, um, a.k.a. A Song of Ice and Fire's Best Wedding, might be my favorite standalone episode of the podcast since she started the reread. I laughed uproariously throughout, um, uh, well, throughout all of the parts that weren't about rape. <laughs> Given that I came into the chapter pretty meh on Danny as a, a character and definitely not looking forward to the violation of a 13-year-old, let's just say you could give D&D lessons and how to, <laughs> to subvert expectations. Who couldn't? <laughs> um, about the alcohol at this party, I traveled to Mongolia a few years ago, and while visiting um, with a nomadic family was offered fermented uh horse milk oh <laughs> it's rude to refuse the drink when you're being welcomed into a family's home so i gave it a try and it wasn't bad um i'm not asking my local bartender to, to mix me an egg or martini but it is not the chunky curled experience i was expecting from the name i definitely would have expected that as well um, I did have a few thoughts about what Drogo gets out of the marriage. Daenerys is the last of an ancient dynasty. Um, it's clear that the Dothraki are quite familiar with the cultures of the free cities, having been given palaces of their own and coming by frequently to shake down the magisters. So it would not at all be surprising to me if they were similar with the legends of the Valyrians. It makes sense to me that members of, uh, of martial culture might be a bit starstruck by the Targs who were massive conquerors who rode giant winged fire breathing horses into battle. For me, Drogo's choice of Danny feels a bit like the rich American families of the Victorian and Edwardian uh, eras who married their daughters off the, to the English nobility. Many of those Dukes and Earls were close to penniless, but they had a glamor and cultural cash that outweighed the economics of the match. Basically, this is the Thraki Abbey, <laughs> where, Danny is, Robert, Abbey. <laughs> oh, where Danny is Robert. And the fanfic is born. Yeah. <laughs> Robert Crawley and Drogo is Cora. 
<laughs> Thank you so much for, gi- for giving me something to look forward to each week. You're making my pandemic more manageable. I'm continuing to lift each to lift you up in prayer of the seven. Yes, even Chicky. Sir Bonifer, <laughs> the emailer. <laughs> I would love to hear, um, you know, just give a Chicky dig. Sorry, I can get a Chicky dig at the end. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, is it like an anti-Danny thing? I don't know. Maybe, but <laughs> they didn't. Uh, Continuing to lift you up in prayer of the seven. Yes, even Chicky. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay. I'd be interested in hearing about um, the say. You know, any 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 insight into like Mongolian sacred mountain, or you know, just more more around Mongolian culture as expressed potentially in the Dothraki. Because I have a weird. Like, I think I've read that, I think. I should know what I've read, but I really sometimes don't. I do think I read <laughs> the secret the secret history of Genghis Khan, but I do have, like, a certain fascination with um, with Genghis Khan and, um, you know, Mongolian culture of that time. So, um, yeah, if there's if there's other connections I should be seeing with the Dothraki, I'd love to, to know more about it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> people didn't expect to hear me confess my fascination with Genghis Khan. No, this is a whole new facet of you, uh, Guile, that I didn't I know existed. You know, it, it, part of it is probably that horse girl thing. I think it might be. <laughs> that's when um, <laughs> we get to the brand chapter that we're going to cover next. I was like, I'm like, damn it, why didn't Guile do this one? It's like so horsey. You know horsey. I do the Danny one. It's my, it's my curse and my blessing. Anyway, and how the fuck did the Eddard ones become my thing? I feel like I'm I'm always covering Ed uh, Ned Stark's chapters. I don't mind it, but it's like, how did this happen? <laughs> well, we'll have to mix it up, I guess. Everyone, now you know that you're seeing the sausage made right here, everyone. <laughs> All right. Uh, if no one has anything else, I am closing the door. Get out. Wait, wait, wait. Oh, open we, the door. Hold I gotta on. open Push the door. Okay. <laughs> I'm opening the door. Oh, you know what? <laughs> a whole bunch of other things. I missed a whole bunch of other stuff. I'm just going to let Lot do it. <laughs> okay. Thank you all for listening to this episode. We love getting your mail. If you'd like to send us more, you may at close the door and at gmail.com. You can reach us at uh, Tumblr on close the door and come here.tumblr.com. You can follow us on Twitter at door podcast. Please consider liking, subscribing, and reviewing wherever you may listen. Um, it's always great if you can become a patron and support us on Patreon. And now, I just want to thank everybody for participating today. And, and Guile, you may now close. The- <laughs> I am closing the door again. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Oh, my God. That is not the first time that I've forgotten.